Our sermon passage today starts in Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, through Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10. And the author writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So now our Father and our God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And by that we, be, we mean we come to you because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we believe that Jesus left heaven to come to earth and live among people. Live as a man. Live in a fallen world. And living in a fallen world, we believe that Jesus was without sin. We believe that Jesus completely fulfilled all righteousness. We believe that Jesus obeyed you and your word and your ways in every possible way. And we believe that Jesus offered his life on a cross as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity. We believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. We believe that Jesus ascended into heaven and that He lives and reigns over the world as the Redeemer and the Lord and the great High Priest who offers salvation to all who believe. Today we believe. Today we confess. And today we come in His name. And so because of Him, because He is our High Priest, because we stand in Him and in His great shadow, we plead that you would hear us. We plead that you would answer us. We plead that you would be gracious to us. We plead that you would pour out your mercy upon us. We plead that you would help us. We plead that you would minister to us. We plead that our lives would be transformed by Jesus. So Lord, as much as possible, I pray that you would take these words which were just read for us, and because they are true and they're right and they're good, I pray that you would work something mighty and powerful and transforming in this room today. Lord, I pray that none of us, not a single one of us, would leave here without being 
met and ministered to by you. Lord, would you do that today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, please take your Bible and turn over to the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, which Spencer just read for us. We're working our way through the book of Hebrews, and today's sermon is entitled, Confident Hope. Confident Hope. Now, when a pastor stands up and says, you should have confident hope in Jesus, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, I know that. But there's a particular context for this sermon today that, that means we really need to understand the power of Jesus to have confident hope. Let me say it a few different ways and see if I can draw you in. First, if we were to look around our world, what we see is brokenness. We see all kinds of craziness. We see hurt. We see broken relationships. We see broken systems. We see hatred. We see evil. We see envy. If you don't believe me, just pull up Twitter and have a little fun. Or Instagram or Facebook or whatever your poison, you pick it. But what all those things do is, is, is they show us that we live in a fallen world. And they show us that what the Scriptures tells us is true, that we live in a world in rebellion against God, and that rebellion has consequences. Easy to look outward, but also if we look inward, what we'll see is guilt, shame, fear, hurt, brokenness, relational brokenness. And what all those things testify to us is that we are a sinful people who need a great Savior. Because the Scripture tells us the guilt, shame, fear, brokenness, those are all just the result of sin. And so what if, like a surgeon, I cut you open metaphorically and laid out all your spiritual junk so that it was known and exposed and seen for all that it is? That sounds like quite a fearful statement, doesn't it? At least it's fearful to me. But that's exactly where the author of Hebrews left us last week. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4. Speaking of God, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is true and good and fearful. Every single one of us, every single one, we're told God knows us to the core of our being. And he sees all of it. And there's an account that will be given for everything that's there. Thanks, Jamie. It's very uplifting this morning. The question for us is, what do we do with that reality? And what our passage this morning tells us is the hopeful, biblical, gospel answer to that reality is to run to Jesus and cry out for grace, mercy, and help. 
And what we know about humanity is that our tendency is not to run to Jesus, but to run away from him. Our tendency is not to cry out for help, but try to hide and pretend and perform. This passage says there is great reason to run to Jesus always, particularly when we are exposed in all of our exceeding fallingness. Think like a child for a minute. What this passage is going to tell us is, in your moment of greatest rebellion, the gospel answer to that rebellion, little child, is to run to your parents, lean in, confess what you've done, and get mercy. Makes no sense, does it, on a human level? That's exactly how the kingdom of God functions. And that's the message for us today. Jesus is the great high priest who is eager to offer grace, mercy, and help to those who run to him. Let me see if I can prove to you from the passage that that's what's being said to us. So the first point, if you're a note taker, don't run and hide. Don't run and hide. Last week's warning left us exposed and fully known in the eyes of God. How do we respond to that moment of knowing that we are exposed and fully known in the eyes of God? There are two ways to respond in that moment. One is the way of Adam and Eve, and the other is the way of Jesus. There are two ways to respond in this moment of, of being exposed and fully known in the eyes of God. I mean, okay, guys, so first of all, you're always exposed and fully known in the eyes of God, but I'm talking about that moment where you're keenly aware of the fact that you are exposed and fully known in the eyes of God. And if you're here today and you've never felt that, I would frankly say to you that one of the most liberating things that could ever happen in your life would be for you to pray and ask God to help you see how exposed and fully known you are because that's where we find grace and mercy. But I digress. How do we respond when we are exposed and fully known? There's the way of Adam and Eve and there's the way of Jesus and they're diametrically opposed. And by the way, your human tendency is the way of Adam and Eve. So in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, God made everything. And He made Adam and Eve as the first humans. Adam and Eve were created to live in the presence of God, to enjoy fellowship with God, and to bask in the glory of God, and to image and reflect the glory of God to the creation because they knew God in a way that the rest of the creation didn't. But Adam and Eve bungled the whole thing. They chose sin, they chose rebellion, they chose their own way, and it messed up the world. But what did Adam and Eve do in their sin? So just think about this. Adam and Eve live in a garden created by God, and they walk freely with God. They commune with God on a regular basis. And when they rebelled against God, what did they do? First, they pretended it didn't happen. They just tried to act like nothing happened. Second, they hid from God. They tried to hide from God. Third, they made excuses. Fourth, they blame shifted. 
Fifth, they tried to do stuff in their own energy and effort to cover up the consequences of their sin. So Adam and Eve acted like it didn't happen. They hid. They made excuses. They blame-shifted. They even blamed God Himself for their rebellion against God. And they tried to to self-correct their own sin. Now friends, does that sound familiar to you? It should, because the way of Adam and Eve is the way of Jamie, and it's the way of you. Left to ourselves, we respond to being exposed for who we really are with different pieces of what I'm calling the way of Adam and Eve. Honestly, I think the one that we fall into the most is we just try to pretend that it didn't happen at all. And when that one fails us, we shift into hiding and making excuses and shifting blame. And when those don't work, we try to do things to take away the consequences of our sin. This is always the way of Adam and Eve. And from Genesis 3 to the end of the Bible, right into today, and all the way into eternity, the way of Adam and Eve is debilitating, it's soul-sucking, it's draining, it's wearying, and it's condemnable. God will never bless the way of Adam and Eve. He won't. But we are by nature the children of Adam and we in our rebellion against God repeatedly when we're left to ourselves choose the way of Adam and Eve. Pretending, hiding, making excuses, shifting blame, and trying to self-correct. That's not the way that Jesus came to offer, and that is not the way commended in Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 4 offers us something far better. It offers us the way of Jesus. So listen again to verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest, we'll come to that in just a few minutes, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So, what he's saying is, Jesus, the Son of God, has done something for us that changes the way we respond to being exposed. What should we do? Number one, let us hold fast our confession. And what hold fast our confession means is to cling to our confidence and our hope that Jesus has died to take away the sting and the punishment and the guilt and the shame of sin. And He's died to restore us into relationship with the Father. So first of all, we cling to our confession. In our exposure, cling to your confession of Jesus. For, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So the first command is when you're exposed Cling to, the, cling to your confession of faith. Second, when you're exposed, run to Jesus. Now let's, let's get some words here. If you're one to mark in your Bible, I want you to underline the word in time of need. In time of need. That's four words. I said word. The four words. In time of need. So when are we called upon 
to cling to our confession and with confidence run to Jesus. When? When we're exposed. When we know our brokenness. When we know our neediness. At that moment, what we're being told is that we're welcomed into the presence of God because of Jesus. Come with all your mess. He already knows it. But the Christian response, the Jesus response, the gospel response is to run to Jesus because we know that He's not a mean, vindictive tyrant ready to shame us for our shortcomings, but He is eager to pour out mercy and grace and help upon those who need Him. Sorry, I need to think about how to do that. So this passage says, hold fast your confession and draw near in the time of need. At that lowest point, at the point where you're exposed, at the point where you're left naked and accountable, run to God. Don't hide. Run to God. Don't fail to confess. Run to God and cry out for mercy. Don't try to cover it up. Run to the Lord. That's the Jesus that we know. That's the way of the Gospel. In the time of need. And in the time of need, what do we find? Mercy, which in its simplest definition means not receiving what we deserve. So, In our sinful exposure, we deserve God's anger, God's wrath, and God's condemnation. But we're told at the throne of grace, in the name of Jesus, we don't receive what we deserve. And grace. Simply put, grace means receiving something that we don't deserve. So, mercy's not getting what we deserve. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve, which means acceptance, forgiveness, and help. So we're told that in our time of need, we're able to run to Jesus, clinging to our confession, and what we will receive there is mercy, grace, and help, which means the very thing that we need in the time of need. So what we're being called to here is when we're exposed and when we feel our exposure, run to Jesus. The way of Adam and Eve The way of the world, the way of every false religion ever created is to hide, to make excuses, to shift blame, and to try to do things ourselves to cover up the consequences of our sin. The way of Jesus is when we're exposed to go to Him in hope, in confidence, and seek the mercy and the grace and the help that we need. So if you're one to mark in your Bible, the second thing I want you to mark is with confidence. Now just ponder that for a minute. Think about that horrible sin that you committed this week. Whatever it was. I know there was one, so just go ahead and name it in your brain. What this passage says is at that moment... You can walk into the presence of God in the name of Jesus with confidence. He will not turn you away. He will not shame you. He will not rub your nose in it. He will not 
hurt you. He will not harm you. But if you come in the name of Jesus, He will meet you in that moment with grace and mercy and help. I can think of no greater good news than that. So the diagnostic question for you to ask under this point is this. When you're faced with guilt, shame, and fear, when you're faced with the confidence of your sin, where do you turn? Because if you turn to self-righteousness, that is not turning to Jesus. If you turn to religious performance, that is not turning to Jesus. If you turn to self-medication, be that through the form of a pill or a drink or something you smoke or something you look at, self-medication is not turning to Jesus. Turning to Jesus is confessing what we've done, confidently crying out for mercy, and confidently asking the Holy Spirit to help us and deliver us from the place where we currently live. Sit. So in your guilt and shame and fear and sin, where do you turn? Now some of you may be sitting there and saying, okay, Jamie, that all sounds very good and all, but why should we turn to Jesus? Why should we turn to Jesus? And that leads to the second point of this sermon. We turn to Jesus because he's the greater high priest. Because he's the greater high priest. Now, anybody used high priest in casual dinner conversation this week? Anybody? Didn't think so, okay. Now, that, that, that answer, turn to Jesus because he's the greater high priest, might not be the most... Um, tangible, felt-need answer to the question for us. But for the original receivers of the book of Hebrews, it was highly relevant and highly tangible. Because the original receivers of the book of Hebrews were people from a Jewish background who had come to faith in Christ and were, were tempted and prone to wonder if they should go back to their Jewish practices. And at the core of Judaism and Jewish life was the role of the high priest. The high priest, this is verses 1 through 4, the high priest was a human born in the line of Aaron who was appointed by God. And what the high priest did was he stood between God and the people. And the high priest represented the people before God. And so on an annual basis, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would kill a lamb and offer its blood as a sacrifice for the sins of the people, pleading with God to delay his, his wrath and his anger upon their sin. And year after year after year, the high priest, this human who was in the line of Aaron, would stand before God representing all the people and he would offer this sacrifice for their sin. The place where the sacrifice was offered was called the mercy seat or the throne of grace. See your imagery coming together here. 
Okay, then the priest, we're told, also, though, would represent God to the people. He wasn't a prophet. He didn't speak for God. But the priest, we're told, was, was to, who himself was a sinner, who himself was fragile, who himself was in need, was able to be long-suffering with the people in their sin because he understands what it's like to sin and he understands what it's like to be in time of need. So in the life of Judaism, the high priest stood in the presence of God on behalf of the people, offering sacrifice for sin, and then guiding the people to look to Jesus, or not Jesus, but to look to Yahweh in their need. That's what the high priest did. And so then what this is arguing is, Jesus does far more than any human high priest And he offers a far greater salvation than any human high priest. Therefore, Jesus is the greater high priest. We see this, we can see it just in the beginning of this passage. Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. So what what he's saying is, Jesus is greater than all the human high priests. How do we know that? Well, in kind of summary language, he says, Jesus is greater than all the human high priests because he passed through the heavens. And what that means is Jesus, who is God, who is the Son of God, left eternity and came to earth, dwelt amongst a fallen humanity, lived, died, rose again, and then rising again, Jesus has returned from the earthly realm into the heavenly realm where now He lives and reigns over humanity forever. So Jesus has done something that none of the other high priests have been able to do, which is come from the presence of God into humanity, die, rise again, and return to the presence of God. Jesus is the greater high priest. passage goes on. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So second, we see that Jesus is the greater high priest because Jesus, while fully human and while enduring temptation, never succumbed to sin. Jesus was without sin. So Jesus is the greater high priest because he's passed through the heavens. Jesus is the greater high priest because while he lived a fully human life, he never succumbed to sin in any way. Third, we see that Jesus is the greater high priest because he indeed was appointed by God not to be a priest for a period, but to be a priest forever. Verse 5 of chapter 5, So Christ did not exalt Himself. I mean, Jesus didn't make Himself the high priest, but God appointed Him as the high priest. And He quotes from Psalm 2, verse 7, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. And then He quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to pause on Melchizedek. We'll come back in a minute. So Jesus is is the greater high priest because he's passed through the heavens. He's the greater high priest because he lived a fully human life, yet never succumbed to sin in any way, which means there's nothing in him that needs to be forgiven. 
Third, he was appointed by God, not just to be a priest, but to be a priest forever. Fourth, Jesus is the greater high priest because he lived a perfectly obedient life. Jesus is the greater high priest because he lived a perfectly obedient life. Verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. So, so verses 7, 8, and 9 are hard for us to understand because many of us are not comfortable pondering and thinking of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was the only person ever to be all God and all man. And so we say that like, yeah, I believe that. But we often think of the life of Jesus as God walking around, kind of just going through the motions because he knows at the end he's going to die and then he's going to rise again and then everything's going to move forward. But what this passage is shouting to us is Jesus lived a fully human life. He was fully human. It means that, that he endured hardship. He wasn't just going through the motions of hardship, but he endured hardship. It means that he was in the face of temptation. He never yielded to the temptation, but he was in the face of temptation. He wasn't just going through the motions of being in the face of temptation, but he was in the face of temptation. And in every moment, he chose God's good way, but he faced real Temptation. And so this language of Jesus being made perfect and Jesus learning obedience, it's saying more than He just never sinned. It's saying that in facing every hardship and every struggle and every suffering and every temptation that humanity could ever face, He fully obeyed God in such a way that He displayed what He always was, a sinlessly perfect being. And His life was a testimony to that, moment by moment by moment. Jesus lived trusting that the Lord would guide Him. Jesus lived trusting that the Spirit would help Him and Every single moment of the life of Jesus was a struggle to choose obedience and righteousness in the face of temptation. A man named T.H. Robinson said it like this. His whole life was one of temptation. And the very fact that he had powers and abilities which we do not possess only added to the stress. He was the fullest and most vivid personality that the world has ever known, and the very richness of his human nature exposed him all the more fully to the assaults of temptation. So Jesus is the greater high priest because he's endured all of the struggles that we've endured, and he's done so without sin. And what the passage says is because of that, Jesus is able to understand and help in our time of need. 
So our English translations say the word sympathize. And so, in, I'm sorry, i got to do a little English lesson here. But in our, English, in our English vocabulary, the word sympathize means, oh, I'm sorry for what you're going through. But the word empathize means, I understand experientially what you're going through. Like we use those words in those ways, or at least you should, okay? The Greek word here that's, in, that's translated sympathize in its range of meaning, has both our English word for sympathy and our English word for empathy. Meaning, Jesus can, it can comprehend and help us wherever we are because He's been through what we've been through. And He lived a fully righteous life. You may say, like, Jamie, like, why are you really hammering this point? Because... I believe that meditating on and considering the humanity of Jesus is not to lower His divinity, but it's to understand what it looks like to live a faithful gospel life in a fallen world. And and what we're being promised here is that Jesus promises to help us do that because He can sympathize with our weakness and our need. So Jesus is the greater high priest because he's passed through the heavens. Jesus is the greater high priest because he was appointed by God forever. Jesus is the greater high priest because he lived a perfect life in the face of struggle, temptation, and practicing obedience. And finally, Jesus is the greater high priest because he is the source of eternal salvation. Verse 9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So what we're being told here is that because of his life, because of his living on this earth, because of his death, Jesus is able to be the perfect high priest who brings the people eternally into the presence of God. So remember the image, the high priest standing in the presence of God representing the people. Jesus stands representing us having offered his life instead of the blood of a lamb. He stands having offered his perfect life to take away the penalty of our sin. And he stands representing his righteousness as what God sees when he looks upon us. Jesus is the perfect high priest to whom we can run in our time of need. So think about this, friends. If Jesus has taken away our sin, we don't have to hide, but we can run to him in our time of need. If Jesus has given us his righteous life, we don't have to run and hide in our shortcomings, but we can run to him because we know that what we need, he has given us. If Jesus has promised us mercy and grace, we don't have to fear judgment and condemnation. We can run to him. So my question to you as we conclude this morning is do you know Jesus in this way? And what I mean by that is, do you know Jesus as the great high priest who is stands, in, it stands in 
to represent you before the Father who stands to plead your innocence, your acceptance, your righteousness, your forgiveness, and your mercy because of what He has done for you. Do you know the Jesus for, of whom you can confidently approach in your time of need? The Jesus who is quick to give mercy, quick to give grace, and quick to give help? Or do you know a Jesus who is just a ticket to heaven when you die? Or do you know a Jesus who is an angry monger looking down his nose, scoffing at you, wondering why you make the stupid decisions that you make? Because that is not this biblical picture of Jesus. He is the great high priest who not only understands, but is empathetic and long-suffering with us in our shortcoming and our sin and our rebellion. And he stands before us in the presence of the Father and he welcomes us and he promises us grace and mercy and help in our time of need. If you know Jesus in this way, will you practice running to Him? Will you practice the way of the Gospel? The way of the Gospel to me looks like this. It looks like lots of confession. Christians of all people should be the quickest to own up to our sin, our rebellion, our failures, and our shortcomings because we know that God knows, we know that God has forgiven us, we know that God gives mercy, and we have nothing to hide. Will you practice running to Jesus in confession? Will you practice running to Jesus in prayer? Prayer is simply communicating with God. It's simply standing in His presence. It's simply basking in the freedom to be there and be accepted and be confident about it. Christians of all people should be free and joyful in the presence of God because we know what Christ has done for us. Will you practice pleading for mercy? Will you practice understanding that what we need most, Christ has given to us, and stop looking elsewhere for it, but run to Him and plead for mercy? Will you practice looking to Jesus for strength? Will you practice re- looking to Jesus for strength? I'm all about Bible reading. I'm all about spiritual disciplines. I'm all about fasting. I'm all about coming to church. I'm all about serving. I'm all about sharing the gospel. I'm all about going cross-culturally in missions. But none of those things in and of themselves will give us strength. Those things might help us meet with Jesus, experience His power, and find strength in Him, but we look to Him for strength. Think about it this way. Often when we pray for someone who's having surgery, we pray about everything except that which really matters, right? We'll pray that the the surgeon will have a good night's rest and not be sick to his stomach and not have shaky hands and not get a phone call at the pivotal time of the surgery and not, you know, like... Like, I guess all that's fine and good, but those are all really just means to the end. What we ought to be praying is, God save my wife. Heal her. All those other things are just means to an end, right? All these spiritual disciplines that I just talked about, they're just means to an end. They're means to the end of knowing God and knowing His grace. So let's look to Him for the strength and not elevate the disciplines. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. My prayer today is that some of us who are here who don't know Christ, maybe for the first time, we would want to wrestle with verse 14. I would invite you to wrestle with verse 14. And here in a few minutes, I'm going to invite everyone who, who knows Christ for salvation to take the Lord's Supper with us. While we're, while we're passing the bread and the cup, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I would ask you, will you think about verse 14 while we're passing the bread and the cup? Here at Redeemer each week, 
Worship team, you guys go ahead and come up. We do take the bread and the cup. We take the Lord's Supper as a testimony of our need for Jesus. So we invite anyone who's a Christian, anyone who's professed faith in Jesus for salvation and made that known to the church, we invite you to take this bread and this cup with us. And here's what we're saying. I need Jesus. He's my Savior. I run to Him with confidence. I need Jesus. He's my Savior. I run to Him in confidence. So some guys are going to come. They're going to pass out the bread and the cup. We're going to sing together. I'll come back in just a few minutes and we'll take these elements together.